Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present an interview of Anne Stone led by Rebecca Jelaine. My name is Marjorie Namara Ragunda and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy comprising the Titsika, Pikani and Kainai First Nations as well as the Tutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. In this interview, Anston's conversation centers around trauma writing, violence, and memory. Stone provides two readings from her latest novel, Girl Minus X, and discusses the ways in which she's approached trauma writing differently throughout her writing career by learning from past failures. After her first novel, Stone became aware of the ways in which a character who experiences violence and trauma is read in a public way. She talks about the importance of taking care of the reader when writing about violence and trauma. The conversation also highlights the significance of memory. Stone discusses the erosion of memory, the dangers of forgetting history, and how it shapes our present. And Stone also discussed Stone's teaching practices and how her teaching and engagement with students has shaped her writing. Rebecca Jelaine recently defended her PhD dissertation in English and Creative Writing at the University of Calgary, a novel that explores human-animal relationships in the setting of a zoo. Her research interests include ecocriticism, animal studies, and visual art in literature. Her poetry has appeared in literary journals across Canada, including in the Malahat Review, CV2, and Read Offense, and she writes reviews regularly for the Fiddlehead and the Malahat Review. She is currently a Public Humanities Fellow with the Calgary Catholic Immigration Society and marks for the Postcolonial Journal Ariel, a review of international English literature. Anne Stone teaches creative writing and literature at Capliano University. She is the author of four novels, which at core explore violence and its effects. Her latest novel, Girl Minus X, tells the story of a girl with an indetic memory and a traumatic past navigating a world in which a slow creeping virus erodes memory. In a storied review, Publishers Weekly called the novel a prismatic look at disaster striking people already in crisis. She's also the author of the 2007 novel, Deli Bull, which tells the story of a 15-year-old girl whose sister has gone missing. Chosen as one of the 35 books of the year by the Globe and Mail, Deli Bull offers a glimpse into a sustained experience of uncertainty and in so doing, explores how our identities exist in those traces we leave behind. Just now, she's working on a book of Sleepstream short stories. here with Anne Stone. Uh, my name is Rebecca Jelaine for Tea House and I'm so happy that you could join me for a chat today. Thank you so much for um, having me. I'm really honored. Um, I've been following the Tea House series and it's been incredible. So yeah, I'm very honored. 
Thanks so much. So I was wondering if you could just start off by giving a little introduction to our listeners, talk a little bit about yourself or your trajectory as a writer or as a teacher or as a person, um, however you'd like to introduce yourself. So I think I'll probably focus on my trajectory um, as a writer. So I am, I have written four novels at this point, and each of them are, they're very surface different. The first one is faux memoir and fairy tale. The second one is a novel length, um, a very short novel length prose poem. The third is a an unresolved story about a missing girl that takes on representations. And this one on the surface would be apocalyptic, but I think there's a thread that connects all of the work. So all of these books um, that sort of move through different genres and modes and approaches are all very much about violence and trauma, though each time through a slightly different lens, whether that's identity, the stories we tell about ourselves, representations, or um, as in the case now, memory and forgetting. So yeah, they have different lenses that come. And I think when I began writing, I don't even think the language was there as much for trauma that came more into play with publications like Judith Herman. I think that connected violence to its after effects and talked about it in that larger social context. And I think in terms of trajectory, it's been moving from an approach that seeks to understand in a, a more narrow manner. I think I'm moving outwards and creating a little bit more distance from violence and looking at it in a slightly different way each time. But I, I feel like it's moving outwards a little bit, um, which might be what happens um, when you reapproach something a number of times and start to see some, some of the larger elements that are at work. That's interesting that you have focused on this central theme of violence and trauma, the central concern, I should say, throughout your writing. And it's almost, you mentioned that the work that you've written is different on the surface, right? But it all sort of is connected in this way. And do you think that is a kind of trajectory of trying to find, maybe not the right way, but the different textures of telling that kind of story. Um, and you, you mentioned, you know, how trauma writing started to become more prevalent throughout your writing trajectory. And did that inform how you were writing? Do you think moving through these different genres kind of helped you explore this concern? I think that's a great question. So in some ways, I think that each time I go to write a novel, it's with learning that I've done from failures. Um, fail, I'm failing better at what I'm trying to do, or I'm readjusting aims in certain ways in response to the way that, for instance, a book moves out and a conversation happens. So for instance, with my second novel, Hush, the prose poem, I think that one of the characters that for me was closest that I, I quite um, cared about and who the novel was very much centered on was seen as abject in a number of ways. And I think misread in a number of ways and by readers at times who I thought were quite ideal for the kind of writing that I was doing. And so I realized I haven't done a certain kind of work or I haven't 
seen what happens when a subject who experienced violence is read in a public way. I just didn't have that experience. And so with Delible, when I came back, it was this movement to, okay, so Lorelai is not taken up or understood, but is sort of treated the way an abject text is thrown against the wall, pushed outwards. Um, And so I thought a lot about how I could create frameworks that would hold someone closer. And so that's why I had the two sisters close in age, but just um, sort of separated enough that one can kind of move further into that experience and the other can be moving towards them, but carrying, I hoped, an audience with them. And that that framework, which was inspired by a work by Doris Salcida, who is a, a sculptor, um, and did these two tables that were like sewn together with human hair and very fragile and very precarious. I thought that precarious structure might hold audience and I think it worked better. So I sort of respond to previous works to a degree, but I'm also, I think the thinking changes. And in retrospect, looking at that second novel, one of the things I didn't do very well was take care of the reader. Um, in terms of what I represented. And I don't think that was part of a conversation at that point. I think it was a time in terms of the culture where there's a lot less care of others in terms of um, writing practices, in terms of a number of different practices. So I think about readers more. I'm a little more careful with them, with myself, with how I approach the work. Um, And that also, I think, has to do with distance. um, Because to be able to do that well is a a choice. And I'm in a place definitely where that's a choice and a responsibility and an obligation that I am able to meet in a different way than I would have been able to at that at that point. So yeah, that's yeah. really fascinating. This it seems like a a kind of play with the limits of the reader's empathy, if you will. Right? Yeah. That is really fascinating when you do want to represent this abject figure and how do you do it? That's probably one of the central problems I'm guessing of trauma writing is how do you do that in a way that also connects with the reader? Right. Um, I guess that this next question that I have relates to this idea of audience, perhaps, because I wanted to ask you also about your teaching practice, because you also teach creative writing. And so how do you think that that connects? And maybe it connects to this idea of how to write characters for an audience, right? And taking that feedback from the audience. And so how do you think that that shapes your writing if it does, the teaching part? Well, I think, first of all, in terms of context, the teaching I do primarily happens at a, an institution where I'm teaching very early undergraduate students, first year, second year. That said, I have a number of students who come into my class who are doing really complex, wonderful, interesting things. So I don't feel I feel like I have a pathway in terms of the teaching that we're going to move through, but that in terms of their work, which enters the classroom, that changes the conversation, that changes what's going to be brought in. 
So they keep me on my toes. Um, I think, I don't know, I find it really exciting. I think the most exciting moments in the classroom are times when students are working on things in ways that are surprising, that are new, that are, they're after something and they're not quite sure. And all you can do is kind of companion them with that and read it back to them, (laughs) help them figure out what it is they're trying to do in terms of say a representation of I've had students do really interesting things with class representations and with trauma and you know, that sort of thing. Um, Yeah. So I think it's a little different than your context where it goes right up to people who are working on books, which is a little more rare. Do you ever think of your students as sort of audience for your books that you write? And do you think of the information that you get from them in a classroom setting? Do you think of that also when you're writing your books or does that, do you feel like the the teaching and the writing feel quite separate to you? I think everything for me is information. I'm such a sponge. So yeah, I, I completely take all of that in. I think in terms of writing, though, I come from a working class background. My dad has a grade eight education. Um, my mom got high school at some point when I was a kid. I remember when they finished that. So I come from a family that are firefighters and like, you know, different, um, very working class occupations. And so sometimes I write about that and I represent that. And I did that in the early work, but I did that as someone who had gone on to university and gone on to graduate studies. And, and my first approaches were not at all open to people that I was representing. Right. And that I, I, where I come from it. And so I think, I think that's part of why with girl minus X, I decided to write in an apocalyptic mode, which is a more popular kind of storytelling. And so, I mean, to me, it's amazing because I have people who are graduate students reading the work, but I've also heard back from someone yesterday who was a bus driver. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm like, that's amazing to, to kind of have something that can speak across that is to me, it's, it's important, but it's challenging. How do you do the work that you want to do that might be more easily implemented in a more surface complex kind of telling? So I'm, I, I don't know. It's always, you're always facing those kinds of limitations. I think of writing. I don't know if this is appropriate as a metaphor, but I think of it like BDSM, right? With ropes where you're like, this arm's gone. Okay. How can we, so it's like, <laughs> yeah, I love that image right. of constraint, actually. A bit of the differences between your previous novels and Girl Minus X is coming into a more popular genre, if you will, or, or one that tries to reach a wider audience, which then you're right, like then it's a kind of constraint in itself, because yeah. you are also trying to do the really intricate and complex work of representing these difficult things like violence and trauma in itself kind of limits the audience anyway so (laughs) absolutely you're right and so then again you're working within that constraint again I loved Girl Minus X I just finished reading it this past week I have to say just for people who are listening this title I think this title is so great for a novel Girl Minus X that I used it as the Zoom password. I don't think that's going to upset our security right now because this is going out later. But what a great title for a novel. For those who do read it, um, you can see that it does work in 
a few different ways in the novel, which I love. This book came out uh, in October, right? Last year? It did. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fresh off the press and I would love to invite you to read a little bit from it. Thank you. I'd love to. So I'm going to read first, I'm going to read two parts. And the first I'm going to read is just from the very beginning of the book. So Girl Minus X is about a 15 year old named Danny um, and her five-year-old sister. They are living in a world in which there is a pandemic, um, not unlike ours. It's a very different kind of pandemic though. It's a virus that erodes memory. Her life is precarious. She's got an eidetic memory, which is difficult when you carry trauma, of course. And she lives in a world in which the social systems have been stretched thin by this slow pandemic. Children who've been variously orphaned by the virus end up basically socially warehoused in um, work farm type environments. And having lost her um, mom to the virus, Danny's been taken into that system. And then when she is out, she is in the care of a guardian, her aunt, who was on parole. But when the parole is revoked, Danny is sort of in this place where she's sort of in an in-between. The system's pretty overburdened. They haven't figured out that she's out there on her own, but she's definitely not able to pay rent or handle things. So she's sort of living in the cracks and things are getting harder and harder as basically problems with the virus ramp up and a new, more dangerous strain starts to circulate. So this is the beginning of the novel. Danny's gone to the prison, which is also basically they have the prisoners caring for late stage cases of the virus. And she's gone to visit her aunt who is there and who she would very much like to break out. So here goes. Danny can just make out the ruined rails of the roller coaster black bones rising into the sky. She knows better than to be here, knows to leave well enough alone, knows the smart thing to do is turn her back and say goodbye. She knows all of this, but it's not so easy letting go of those you love. So Danny takes one step and then another, huffing her way up the hill as her kid sister falls behind. When they crest the hill, she sees the whole of the prison, the old racetrack girded by fences topped with razor wire, where once were horses, she sees infected, where once were grooms, she sees prisoners in orange jumpsuits and watching over them, inside and out, military guards. Below them, scattered across the face of the hill, a dozen little groups, the families of the women they've locked up inside. Some cluster around foam coolers, some sit on what scant grass can be found, and some, she can tell, have given up on the visit. Laid out on old blankets, their faces are tuned to the clouds. Some, like her, have one eye on the prison hospice. Danny is scanning the compound when the kid's tiny hand slips into hers, tugs once, twice. Give me a sec, she tells Matt. Danny wants to see Aunt Nora, but there's no sign of her, not yet. But there, just inside the fence, Danny spots a chicken coop. Beside the coop, a half dozen birds are stacked in tiny cages. Stunned and ragged, the birds shift on bony feet. In one of the cages, a bird lays dead, its legs jut out, stiff as popsicle sticks. There's an old and stunted apple tree at the bottom of the hill, but it's not nearly tall enough, and besides, it's too far from the fence. But there beyond the apple tree. She sees an enormous maple with leaves the size of dish rags. 
The maple is close to the fence and a few of its branches arch up and over the barbed wire. Her eyes follow the largest branch, trace a path over the razor wire, make the 10 foot drop to the chicken coop's roof. Again, with the tugging. But Danny's looking at the race course now, an oval dotted with a hundred of the infected, more virals than she's ever seen together in one place. Stick thin legs, sallow skin, a strange human herd. But herd's not the right word. Together like this, the infected don't move like any group of animals Danny's ever seen. They don't move like a crowd of people either. Each viral's path is erratic. When she traces pathways over the track, she sees dark particles in a stirred glass, atoms in Brownian motion. And then a picture of the virals lives in her mental album too, for always, added to all of everything she's ever seen in the world. At the center of the field, a few stand with faces tipped to the sun, stumbling in slow circles. She takes in each of their faces, but none is familiar or else all of them are with that strange waxen skin. On each yellow jacket, a little metal clasp flashes when the viral hit six o'clock. Round and round they go, slowly spinning tops. The virus, she knows, has left its mark on the brains of the infected. At this stage, the gray matter is riddled with tiny holes. The hypothalamus has shriveled up like an old pea, and the cortex and medial temporal lobe are pitted with deep, unforgiving lesions. The virus causes all kinds of psychiatric symptoms, but that's not what gets to Danny. What gets to her is this. Once the disease has gone this far, the infected forget. They forget about everything. They forget to even care. They forget friends, loved ones, how to act, how to be, who to be. Looking out over the prison hospice, Danny knows the virus she sees are literally dying. But at this stage, people say, death hardly makes a difference. And maybe one day, none of this will matter to anyone. Maybe one day, if the virus infects enough people, they'll just run out of fence. So the other part I'm going to read is really short, and it's towards the end of the book. Spoiler, sorry. But Danny gets taken up in a carceral medical system towards the end of the book. And this is one of my favorite passages, I think, because it deals with um, time in a really interesting way. Time is sort of my nemesis clocks. <laughs> I have a really hard time with them. But when I was looking back at the book, figuring out things to read, I realized that time had become this major part of the book in a way I don't think I'd realized during composition. And it's probably my favorite element. So I'm going to read that. Danny hears the pounding of boots on the wooden deck and before she can explain, before she can tell them that she's the one who called, someone slips an evac hood over her head, but backwards, and she is blind. Danny screams, kicks, scratches, but it's too late. She feels the prick of a needle and time is a suitcase that opens in her mind. Time is a suitcase brimming with soft silk scarves and she's standing alone in a room filled with light and holding up one scarf and then another in her hand as the wind catches the soft fabric blowing softly, a world of light and water. Time is a cottony and fibrous thing, an itch at the edge of her mind slipping. Sometimes she hears voices, but time pours cool water and the voices blur like watercolor paints. And even pain, she realizes, can be soft at the edges, a forgetting, half-forgotten thing. Thank you so much. Those last two passages are just beautiful. Thank you. Um, that opening passage that you read as well. As soon as you crack open the book, 
you're just filled with this suspense and your pacing, speaking of time throughout the book is just so, it's so good. You're just kind of on the edge of your seat as you're reading through it. This idea of time actually comes through, I think, in the writing as well. And that's kind of in this forward movement that's so everything is happening so fast and they're kind of stilled in this moment and they're trying to do so much so yeah I mean this idea of time perhaps also relates to memory right I mean that's probably central conceit of this book um, at least that when I was reading it seemed to be the virus is fatal so that's really scary but the other part like you mentioned that's very scary about it is that it erodes memory yeah and so what does that mean for you, I guess? What does that erosion of memory mean? And were you thinking about a particular cultural phenomenon when you were writing this and when you had this idea of memory and trauma? I think it took me a while. I, when I first wrote Girl Minus X, it wasn't about Danny. It was about the history teacher, my first draft. The same oh, movements. Interesting right? The same sort of structure. They move from the same beginning to the same ending or close to the same one. But Danny was a minor character. And it wasn't something about it didn't have urgency for me. It didn't I mean, there was a lot that I liked, but I felt like um, I'm a slow writer and slow realizer. So basically, I, I very quickly summon the piano And then I'm like, that's not in the right place. And I move it around for the next six years with my nose until it's in the right spot. So I rewrote the book like multiple times until it was centered on Danny. And then I played with point of view for another couple of drafts until it became weirdly third person present, but it felt like that blend of immediacy and distance just hit right. So in terms of forgetting Those were themes that were emergent. I think there were hints of that in the earliest drafts, but it took me a while um, to think about it. And I think there's a huge amount of pressure when it comes to trauma to forget, you know? Um, And I think we see that in larger social ways. We see that in interpersonal ways. We see that in terms of cityscapes. And I think in part, um, that might be why I chose to open it at the the peony with the roller coaster visible and use some of the sites that I used, mm-hmm. which are places where terrible things have happened in Vancouver. And people go every year and bring their kids and go on rides and eat candy. And I guess coming as an adult to Vancouver, having the city unfolded to me by friends who are activists and who are just aware of that history so that it's unfolded at once. I don't, I can't participate to the same degree in the forgetting. I don't have nostalgia about that site. And so I guess it's quiet. It's more like an Easter egg, but I, I, I guess I'm thinking a lot about all of the forgetting that we are constantly a part of, and which is so problematic in so many ways. Um, Like I didn't begin this, I should have probably began with the land acknowledgement, right? Like right now I'm East Van, Mm -hmm. um, which is um, the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh. And so as as a settler on this land, it's hard to even wrap your mind around what that means because it's an intergenerational occupation, right? And it is couched in this constant forgetting. It's like we wake up every once in a while and we're like, oh my God, I'm occupying land that 
was stolen by people generations before. And that's sort of, you know, moving down through generations caused all of these terrible social inequities you see looking out. And, mm-hmm. and it's like, I think, I think, yeah, I think w- staying awake is hard and being aware is hard. And I think I was thinking about that a bit with the book. And I think I have more experience of that in terms of trauma, in terms of violence than, and then otherwise as someone who struggles to stay awake to what things mean in the world around me. I mean, that's really interesting, this idea of wanting to forget and at the same time, there being a real danger to that. forgetting of the past. And in fact, as you mentioned, some of the other TOS episodes, we had a conference in 2019 or a symposium in 2019, basically about that. A lot of movements that were happening in the past that are kind of happening again, but without the connectedness between what had happened before and what happened now. And, you know, how do we move forward with just ways to travel forward without recognizing that this also happened in the past and it's yeah. happening again to try to connect those things together. That was the Wisdom Council symposium that we had at Tea House. And so it seems like what you're saying about Vancouver is in fact that it's important that the novel took place there for you because of those different sites of violence. Do you think that that's, that's the case for this book? It's such a, a kind of alarming presence in the book without it being front and center. There are certain things I can feel coming specifically from Vancouver in this book. And so was that important to you? I think um, I wanted to approach place in a different way than I had before. And I think that I've, I've lived a lot of places and moved a lot. So I didn't really set down belonging until I got here and um, connected in a way that felt very rooted. But I've, I've lived in a lot of places. And I think that I didn't um, grow up in a place that was particularly aware of its history. Mm. Um, and so there are cities I can look over where there are blanks instead of, of ways of knowing, right? Whereas I was very lucky in terms of Vancouver coming here. Um, my partner is Wade Compton, who's a cultural critic and an amazing writer. And I, I think of our relationship as a 21 year long conversation that I benefited from in huge ways, right? So Vancouver is a city that has been unfolded for me as a narrative at the same time that I experienced it and by people who know a lot more than me. <laughs> so I, I, I felt like as a, as a place, I guess all of that could be bound up with it in a way that I don't know that I, I, I don't have the kinds of knowledges that would be required to do that with places I've, I've lived before I've been here a long time. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've sort of, I think grown up intellectually here. And so, yeah, it's, I think it's the only place that's available to me with that kind of complexity. And even so I'm still very much a beginner in learning. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that idea of rootedness coming from learning the stories of the place, which is so important and and really does tie into this idea of memory and time being related because with the time even with the time you spent there and you're not you weren't born in Vancouver but this idea that through memory we can 
gain time perhaps, you know, or that we can access time at different time. And I guess I'm curious about how some of the social issues in particular, um, either of Vancouver or of our world at large (laughs) currently um, play into the book, because I think that one thing the book captures beautifully is how this moment of crisis in the book actually heightens social disparity and inequality. And I think that perhaps before this global pandemic, collectively, we might have thought if there's a big crisis, we will forget all that other stuff. But in fact, what you're showing in this book and what we've also seen um, is that it just heightens those inequalities, right? And so were you thinking about those things in particular, did they kind of just come together out of the characters in the book? Or what are some of the social issues that you were thinking of? That's a really, you've been asking amazing, amazing questions. And I feel like I've been answering each according to whatever register is most available to me at the moment. But I feel like we could actually start all over again. And I could give totally <laughs> different answers. I have wanted to write realistically about about what it is to not have a lot or, um, and to have those kinds of limitations and what that means. And I'm now writing it from a place of privilege. I have a regular teaching job. This is like, so I'm aware of those shifts. But when I wrote Danny, Danny had such a limited amount of resources in her life. Like it's, it's pretty desperate. And she is a bit of a brickler with that she puts together what she can, um, as you would like relying on whoever you can in whatever way those relationships get fostered and Mm -hmm. formed, and it completely influences what their trajectory is through all of those elements. So I think I was trying to be true to what their situation was and realistic with it. I would have rather been wrong when our pandemic came along. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. I would have been happy to be wrong. I was really, really happy um, that we didn't have when I started writing this, we had a, a liberal government in DC, <clears throat> which is like, not, you know what I mean? It's really, it's very right and very business oriented. And at least we have NDPs who believe in science and like, think it's important, you know? (laughs) So I was, you know, I wasn't writing to be predictive. I wasn't writing um, to do those things. I was writing as a kind of thought experiment and setting things up in ways that pressurize the system. I guess I was thinking about survival and then concretizing that. And then the genre became a way of talking about survival and just making large some of the smaller processes that happen Mm -hmm. in, in that kind of an experience. It's so fascinating to read Danny's trajectory throughout the book because she does some very questionable things, right? Yeah. But you can you can yeah. absolutely see why that happens. And you can absolutely see why that is her current state of survival and what she's doing to adapt and what she's doing just to survive and what she's doing just to protect the people that she loves. Kind of coming back to what we were saying before is that is a kind of practice and empathy for the reader, right? her decision to continue on with her 
sister and the group that they've formed to try to escape the city while believing she's infected is also really interesting, right? At this point and takes on a different kind of weight. And so I guess this is, I'm sure you've been asked this question before, but I think it's maybe an inevitable question is, how do you look at this book differently now in this time? And what does that change for you? And what's it like actually for this book to come out during a global yeah. pandemic? Because I know how long it takes to write books and you didn't write right. it in a couple of months. <laughs> no, the book was in fact finished um, <clears throat> and taken by the press in 2018. <laughs> and then in March of 2020, it's all designed. It's ready to go. We've seen it. It's really exciting. They, um, made the wise decision to push it back because everything was closed and they knew it was just going to basically be released into a closed warehouse. So, so I did find myself doing copy editing in the very earliest days. And one of the things that happened when I went over the book, I just, I read it once just to pay attention to the character's hands after they were aware of that secondary strain and the importance of their hands and things had ramped up. And I don't think I'd realize. I mean, our brains are so devoted to human faces, but I feel like in the last year, my, my <laughs> so much yeah. of my brain has become devoted to where my hands are and um, what they've touched and just this awareness of that. And I, even though I had imagined it and written it into the book, I don't think the degree of that in consciousness had reached me entirely. But yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting um, that I, I wrote a book that I thought was science fiction. And by the time it was released, it's realism. Um, so genre is pretty, you know, as we all knew all along, it's pretty arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about your perspective when you approach that text or when you write that text, it could be simultaneously different genres for different people carrying different things. But yeah, it's been, it's been strange. But the one thing I think I didn't imagine for sure was all of the ways in which our experiences would be repetitions of our early experiences with a difference, like walking around a grocery store and everyone with masks and how, how strange and normal it is to see what had been a science fiction trope playing out in the most ordinary of spaces mm-hmm. or how much time we spend locked in our like closing our doors and inside our houses in very just quiet and quieter ways. It's mm-hmm. like, and then it's really ordinary. It becomes very ordinary, very quickly and normal. So there's a constrained time frame in the book that doesn't allow that kind of space to see how things would For play sure. out yeah. but it's been uh, quite an education. Yeah. <laughs> And what about reader reactions to the book? Because like, have you had any sort of responses to it that have been particularly connected to this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I've had a few people sort of want to read it and say it, but I can't (laughs) until after we're out, um, who then returned to it when the vaccine was announced. And they were like, okay, I can read your book now. I couldn't last week, but this (laughs) week I can bear it. And others are like, I, I think it's just, we're all very different that way. Some of us, when something hits, we we sort of want as much as we can just to kind of like play it through and, and understand and others just need it to kind of close off. So I think that's very individual, but the response has been really, I'm really happy to see that people have been for the most part, really connecting with the characters. So that's fantastic. 
every book I ever write is a total failure within like five years in my mind. So like I'll, I haven't figured that out how yet, but I will, you know, Mm -hmm. I have to think more and then I'll know where to go next. So yeah, it's really interesting what you say about genre and what people do want to read and don't want to read because I was finishing edits on my own novel when this pandemic started and I was like how is this relevant anymore (laughs) you know it's a realist novel well I should put realism in (laughs) in air quotes it was yeah Yeah. now it's it's science fiction and alternative (laughs) history exactly yeah (laughs) and I you know I was thinking like what is what is going to be the interest in this and had a kind of existential crisis (laughs) with my own book at the time yeah, so that is really it is really interesting that you were thinking about some of these things in a different way, obviously, but that they're there. I actually like reading stuff like this in this time because I feel more connected or something to what's going right. On. Yeah, like it helps you process in a way. Tell so. me about your book, though. I'd love to. I'm really <laughs> yeah. curious. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just finishing it up. I'm going to be defending my PhD very soon. So I wrote a novel that is realist fiction and it is a kind of love triangle story. The main character who is a photographer also becomes really interested in Mm -hmm. um, animals at the zoo and photographing them. And so there are some ideas sort of related to like you but in a in a different sense is representation and there's two layers of representation with the photography and then the novel and also animals so I've been really interested in that relationship between uh, humans and animals in the book cool yes I love this setup that you're doing though that sounds fantastic like on the one hand you describe it and it's this like simple elevator pitch but then you're like (laughs) you drop back and you're like but (laughs) as soon as you start to think about this character being a photographer and this I can see how that might unfold I'm really fascinated I can't wait I can't wait for it Um, but yeah thank you I really I really appreciate that so you mentioned that one time that the book was originally going to be centered around the history teacher, which yeah. was fascinating to me. And so I'm guessing that that kind of relates to this idea you had of time passing and memory because of history. And I can kind of see that. And yeah. so what draws you to this coming of age narrative? Because Danny is a teenager and in other books you've written, you also have um, teenagers or young people, essential characters. And so what do you think the draw is for you? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think people can be very dismissive of um, fiction written about teenage girls. They're like pretty much the least important demographic in terms of culture, right? Mm-hmm. And yet I think I find um, that age period and Um, that experience really incredibly fascinating because you come from being like this sort of child figure and you're pressing forward into all of these cultural narratives and expectations and you have to navigate those while you're physically transforming into some other creature in this really strange way at least that's how it was for me Um, it felt like really bizarre but it's really pressurized because of the ways in which you are suddenly um, vulnerable to different kinds of problematic behavior and new kinds of violence and all of this stuff. So I'm not really interested in coming of age. It's not really that narrative where it's about fully forming as an adult so much as that 
liminal uncanny space where you're first starting to navigate Mm. all of these really difficult questions that come at you from the world around. So I I seem to find that space really generative and really interesting, though I really, really want to write about old ladies next. I mean, like I'm writing short stories now, so that's done, but I really want to write about old ladies because they're interesting like teenage girls are. You can try and then see if the narrative brings you back to a younger character. You'll have to see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah, And I can see that too. You're right. The novel isn't about Danny coming into adulthood in some fully formed way, but it really is about how she can navigate it and how much she learns so quickly and seems so determined and so in some ways has a little bit of innocence about her still because she's a little bit naive in terms of what she thinks she can do but then she can she's so adaptable and she perseveres in in this terrible crisis situation I mean I think that that character who is like you say liminal and who is not taken so seriously right a teenage girl um, how that is a really interesting figure of possibility. I think as well, our friendships when we're teenage girls are pretty um, wonderful and intense. Like, do you mm, remember they were yeah. your world? And I, I, something about that for me is really incredible. It's before, and if there were partners, other people, they were so temporary, right? <laughs> there were these repetitive interruptions that disappeared. And when they came, you knew they would disappear again. <laughs> and so really your focus was on your friends and it, I don't know. And you had, I think in spite of everything, there's a certain kind of freedom that comes like at that mm. period. Yeah. Um, sometimes quite painfully and sometimes quite paid for, but yeah, um, yeah, I find it really, all of it very interesting. Yeah. I would not, you could not pay me to go back, but. (laughs) (laughs) From a bit of a distance, it's okay. Well, speaking of friendships, there's a kind of unlikely community that forms between the characters and partly it's a friend who becomes the lifeline for Danny and then there are a couple of family members. And then there's also her history teacher. And then there are some other characters that also come in and out. And I'm wondering if you were thinking about that idea of relationship and community and how these form, or maybe they came out of how does Danny survive in this world? Who does she need to reach out to? But were you thinking about this kind of idea of community or relationships? I think in my experience, my, the people I feel most connected to are not necessarily related to me. And so there, it feels like that's what you do. We're like, kind of, we connect, we collect people up and we, we keep um, certain of them and it becomes far more important to us than anything else. And I think that comes in part with having moved so many times and having shifted from one sort of context to basically, I think if you come out of a working class background, it's hard to maintain those. I know people who do, and I, I, it's incredible, but it hasn't been as easy for me. And so it's all sort of shifted and I've sort of put it together later and um, in really good ways. So I also think that connections are super important. Like every time I'm talking to people 
about what's happening now. The most hopeful things I hear are about connection. Those moments where people aren't about, hey, when will I get the vaccine or when will Canada, so-called Canada get it, but rather that broader perspective that sees all of us as living in a way that's like, inescapably connected and that we need to think that way. And we need to think about our body as part of a larger body. And how do we make a larger kind of caring and safety that is not necessarily about you or me or um, whoever we consider family, but really about decisions that are, I don't know, good ones. So yeah, I think connection's important. I think we need a radical change to how we think and how we live and how the kinds of disparities that we allow, Mm -hmm. that we perpetuate. Mm -hmm. We need to, we we desperately need to change all that because all of those make us more vulnerable and make our, our social body unhealthy, unsustainable and harmful. So those relationships are 100% necessary to Danny's survival, right? Um, Without them, she wouldn't be able to do this on her own. You know, even her reason to survive seems to be her sister, but then she also has all these other people that she needs there with her. And so it does kind of upend this idea of the soul warrior against the apocalypse. Do you feel like this is a very community-oriented book and relationship-oriented book? All my reading, like I do a a unit and I have to teach, I teach English 100 basic composition along with creative writing. And um, when I was working on the book, one of my favorite things to teach was basically catastrophes. And I would be like, yeah, you can do your final paper on the zombie apocalypse. That's fine. But you have to have academic resources. And since there aren't a lot for the zombie apocalypse, you'll have to like work with people who've studied catastrophe and human behavior. And one of the interesting things is that it tends to be really pro-social and continuous with behavior beforehand. And so people help each other, people (laughs) reliably and in really good ways, reach out, connect and do work. And often the narratives of people's behaviors are profound misunderstandings. So if you talk about people panicking because they're running into um, a, a building that's just collapsed or that's on fire, it's, they're not panicking, they're rescuing. <laughs> they're trying to be pro-social and to help people. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you have a mythos or, or a belief a cultural belief that people don't behave that way in spite of the fact that actually they do. I wonder then how that would play out in pockets, right? So I think potentially some of our beliefs and some of our pop cultural models could be pretty problematic and harmful. So I don't know. I just, (laughs) I really, I like, I find it hopeful when I read about people helping each other and reaching out and that. So yeah. I wanted to write a book where I think Danny has to navigate her own sort of received ideas about that a little Mm -hmm. bit and undo them. And I think she also has to understand that it's not just that she, I think, carries harm that has happened to her, but that how she herself can perpetuate that harm or bring that harm forward. So I think that that is the most important work that they do over the course of it is try to understand and navigate their own become visible to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that plays out really beautiful in the end. And I don't 
I don't want to give it away for anyone, uh, but there is a sense of connection. Even when there's this question about whether Danny can still be a person with this virus, this kind of thread that goes throughout the book is what makes a person who is a person. And then she moves into this space and she still finds a way to connect even at what might be considered the end of her journey. And so I, I really love that ending and that final image. It feels hopeful even in this state of absolute disaster. Oh, thank you. I'm glad. And so you mentioned that you're writing or finished writing maybe now a collection of short stories. And I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. So I started Girl Minus X in 2011 and I wrote the first draft fast. And then I spent the next like six, seven years bound to it over and over and over trying to get it right. So when it was done, um, I decided I was going to write short stories because short stories were, I thought, easy, fast. And <laughs> I had recently picked up Kelly Link and I had read voraciously all of their collections. And I was like, wow, you can just do anything with these, right? Um, okay, secondary read, I realized these are carefully structured, well thought out <laughs> stories. But my first impression was, oh my gosh, you can just like, blow it all up. Great. Let's go. So I started playing and I just, I think I had felt so restrained by working with one idea that I just started to have a lot of fun um, very quickly. So I think of these stories as stances and plays and sort of like playing with possibility in a quick way. Um, And then I have to step back there and do the real work. So it's actually as hard as a novel. (laughs) (laughs) Times it'll be a dozen of them. So times 12, the editing has been really hard, but I'm playing with um, horror and body horror Mm. and readerly expectation and all of these things. But I love that it can be done on such a small postage stamp where I don't have to spend seven years with one piece, but I'm already starting, like I'm, I'm doing the, the final drafting, which is incredibly hard, like actually just getting them to where they could be from those first gestures to the story that I write terrible first drafts. And then I I spend forever (laughs) editing until they're good. But yeah, I'm having a lot of fun, but I am starting to miss um, dwelling with something for a long time because now I'm finding it's these little tiny acts of grief. It's like, oh, I really like that. And they're gone, you know, I'm <laughs> so I kind of want to abide. Um, so that might mean that I'm beginning to get ready to write another novel, but I think yeah. I'm going to vacillate from now on. So I actually finish things once in a while because I miss it. I love that feeling of accomplishing something that happens when you actually finish a thing. And um, it's so nice if you finish a story and it goes out and it gets published, whereas it might be for me, it was 13 years between books. And it's like, I, I it, that's a little too long. So <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, there yeah. is, there is something that really draws you in when you're writing something longer. And that can yeah. both be good and bad. So it draws you in, but then you also, you're not getting that feeling of having it in the world and being able to engage with it in that way. And those things are so important, like your connectedness to other people and writers is often felt at those moments where something comes out or something's read. And so that's a long spell to go without. I mean, I was so delighted when I launched Girl Minus X and, you know, people who've been important to me were there. And I was like, oh my God, do you remember me? (laughs) It's so nice. 
<laughs> I didn't expect that. I thought I was starting over again, you know, yeah. with a novel, even if you do share pieces of it, it's just not the same because you can't get that yeah. same kind of engagement. So you are actually alone with it for quite a long time. Yeah, it's true. That connection is so important to me, right? Yeah. Like I just, yeah, for sure. Well, I really look forward to reading this collection of short stories. It sounds really exciting with all the different genres that you're going to explore. It's fun. It's been fun. So we'll see. And I am so looking forward to reading your book. Like it sounds wonderful. Yeah. That'll thank be you good. So much. Yeah. yeah. And do you have any, I was thinking, do you have any ideas germinating for this next novel? You said maybe older women. I don't think I'm ready with that one yet. I have okay. something else I was thinking of doing. So we'll see. If the old, older, like, you know, I, I'm just like, I don't know enough about um, old people homes, but if I could get myself put in one for, <laughs> I think I would so get that a novel is a little bit down I think the way still. I think it's down the way is a bit, but yeah, maybe we'll see. We'll see. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been really lovely and I've really loved reading this book. Thank you. That was just a brilliant conversation. It's so pleasurable to talk to someone who's thought deeply about your work. It's like such a gift. Yeah, you're thank welcome. You. Yeah, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Anne Stone by Rebecca Jelaine. I'm Marjorie Rugunda, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Max Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai. Marjorie Rugunda, Mahmoud Ababne, Ryan Stern, Paul Menye, Mark Lynch, and Shuyin Yu. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposiums, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.teahouse.ca. That's tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.